This morning we're um, still looking at the fifth way. The fifth way is the, the book that I wrote that um, chronicles the journey of a modern Westerner to the Hebrew heart of Jesus. And this is something that uh, was a, at least a 10, 12-year journey for me personally. And what I had to do, the twists and turns along the way, the, uh, <laughs> the willingness to be completely disoriented and spun around, you know, kind of like Linda Blair, Blair in The Exorcist, the head spinning. Uh, it, that's that's kind of how it felt, is that everything that I thought I knew had to be kind of put aside, had to be put down, at least had to be put on the shelf for a little while to try to get my mind and heart and arms around a message that comes from such a different place, such a different place. And so, as we've been talking through this, this first third of the book that we've been going through is just kind of looking at all the things that make up our worldview, all the things that we don't even understand as a worldview, that have to be looked at, have to be considered, and have to be weighed against this ancient Eastern worldview that Jesus is coming from. And so it makes it really, really difficult for us to to uh, even know that we're not seeing reality directly, that we're seeing it through the filter of this system of beliefs, this acculturated system that is personal, it's familial, and it works out all the way into our society and Western civilization as a whole. All of this has conspired to give us a certain view of life that is sort of 180 degrees opposite from the, the, the view of life that Jesus' contemporaries held. And so what he is using, the language he's using, the images that he uses to convey his truth in that world doesn't have the same ring to us. The words don't mean the same thing to us. And so taking some time to look through this has been what we've been doing. And the last piece before we actually get into the four ways that precede the fifth way, since the name of the book is the fifth way, is looking at scripture itself. Last week we took a look at theology. We talked about theology as being an attempt to express God's essence, but it's not God itself. And sometimes we lose that. We end up getting so invested in our theology, we get so invested in our belief system, so invested in our church or our denomination, that we lose sight of the fact that God transcends all of that. God is behind all of that. God is bigger than all of that. That there's nothing we could ever do really to describe him. 500 years ago, At the Protestant Reformation, an interesting thing happened. The Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, had pretty much been on the throne of Christianity for a thousand years. And the corruption had gotten so bad, the the extent to which the Roman Church had gone to try to just keep itself running had put such an oppression upon the people that it had become intolerable. And so Martin Luther, being the first out the door and nails his 95 Theses to the castle church wall and gets himself excommunicated, not what he ever intended to do. He wanted to reform the church from the inside. And they threw him out. Typical, right? So he starts his own church. And the rallying cry of that church and all of those who joined in the Reformation were sola scriptura, sola fide, and the priesthood of all believers. Those were the main three cries. And that means... Scripture alone is where we get our revelation from God. Faith alone is where we get our salvation. And that everyone who is a believer is essentially a priest. 
that we need no middleman. There needs to be no clergy standing between us and God. You don't have to go to the priest for absolution. You don't have to go to the church in order to find your connection with God. If you think about it, those three were all aimed directly at the heart of the Vatican's power. They held on to the scriptures themselves. They kept them in Latin. They forbade on pain of death anyone translate the the, uh, Bible into the local language that people spoke. And they were alone the arbiters of interpretation of scripture. And it wasn't just by faith that you were saved, but also by the traditions and the precepts of the church itself. So there were things you needed to do. There were works you needed to perform. Most of them, you know, religiously related, liturgically related. So again, you were dependent on that performance in order to be saved. And then, of course, they had the very highly developed and hierarchical clergy. So here come the reformers doing this. But essentially what they did, if you think about it and look at that, that, that model, it may have been necessary for them to get out from under Rome's power. But as a priest told me once, he said, at the time of the Reformation, the Protestants took the book and the Catholics took the bread and they've never been together since. So you got the book and you have everything intellectual on the Protestant side of the ledger and you have all the traditions and the sacraments and the mysticism on the, and the Catholic side of the ledger. And if you look at us today, 500 years later, that's exactly where we stand. In fact, if anything, the distance between has gotten deeper. The trenches have gotten deeper and more dug in. You know, the razor wire is, is a lot more dense between the two sides. And we here in the West, who are the heirs to European Reformed and Protestant theology, have become increasingly and increasingly intellectualized. Not only that, what happened at the same time as the Reformation? The Enlightenment, right? And so you have this huge spike in all of the sciences, especially the natural sciences and in philosophy. And the idea of rationalism, starting with Descartes, you know, only about you know, 60, 70 years after Luther, setting the tone for Western civilization for the last 500 years in the modern era, that everything really is defined rationally and logically. And it's impossible to separate those two things. If your whole society looks at life rationally, how are you going to look at your scriptures? How are your theologians going to interpret the scriptures? They're going to interpret interpret them more and more rationally, more and more intellectually. They're going to use the same, and this is exactly what happened, use the, the exact same scientific principles that science was using to deconstruct nature, to break it down into little parts. Understand those parts, right? And then put them together again so we have everything under glass, we have everything understood. And the theologians started to do the same thing with scripture, break it down into these parts. Every phrase had to be understood, every image had to be understood, and then looking at it under this glass. And it's made a typically Western style of theology and biblical interpretation, but is it the right one? Is it what we really should be doing? You know, we as Christians... Uh, Islam in the Quran calls Christians and Jews the people of the book because even in the 8th century Jews and Christians were so tied to their scriptures the scriptures were everything the scriptures were what defined them as a faith group and what gave them the impetus for their faith lives and today it's no different if anything it's even stronger so we are people of the book we take these scriptures very seriously and we should 
But the question now becomes, how should we be approaching Scripture? Are we doing it the right way? Is this intellectual, rational approach the way we should be approaching our Scriptures? Last week I ended with um, a saying from Chuang Tzu, who is uh, an ancient Chinese philosopher of about the 3rd century B.C.E. And he said, the purpose of a fish trap is to catch a fish, and once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit, and once the rabbit is caught, the snare is forgotten. He said, the purpose of words is to convey ideas. Once the ideas are grasped, the words are forgotten. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words? He's the one I want to talk to. I love that. Now to that I added, the purpose of theology is to catch God, to grasp God, to feel his embrace. But once God is caught, the theology can be forgotten. Where can we find someone who has forgotten theology? See, it's like that. Theology points to God, but isn't God. Now, our scriptures, though, are a step closer to God, aren't they? They're the word of God. We understand them as the inspired word of God. Somehow they were written by God in ways that were not quite clear often. But this is what we're looking at. How do we take a look at scripture? Is scripture in the same vein as theology? Does it point to God, but is not God itself? I think we can probably all agree in this room that scripture is not God. Yeah? Okay, all right. Not going to get any uh, rocks thrown up here. But how is it related to God, and, and what is that that tenuous relationship, and, and how do we see that? There was a. This is now slipped into legend, but there was a um, what do you call it? a traveling uh, speaker, a itinerant speaker who came and spoke at Cal- Capitol Beach Calvary years ago. His name is Barry Taylor, and trying to make this very same point, he took the Bible right in the middle of his, of his message, threw it on the ground and stood on it. And there was this collective gasp in the audience. Ah! You know, and then, of course, the ducking to see if the, the thunder bolt was going to come down and take him out. You know. But he's trying to make the same point. This is ink and paper. This is not God. But what is that relationship to God? That's what we're trying to figure out. You know, he's trying to give us shock treatment. And he did a really good job at that. Maybe made some enemies along the way. But he's making a point that I think we need to take a look at. Where you come down on that point is totally up to you. But make sure that you've looked at it. Because otherwise we can get into completely foreign areas in terms of the way that we treat scripture. I remember when I first came to uh, the evangelical church, you know, what was this, 25 years ago, and I was first introduced to the Bible because I grew up Catholic. We didn't use the Bible. You know, it was just the missile that we had every... Sunday at Mass, and the only scripture we heard was portioned out in the cycle of the liturgy. And so suddenly the Bible was so central. I walk into this church and everybody has a Bible. And so I had to get a Bible too. And I loved my Bible. You know, I had it, you know, embossed with my name on the cover. And I got those little tabs, you know, for each one of the books because I didn't know where the books were. So that helped me out. And then I got this really nice leather case for it. You know, I can still remember it was blue. I think I still have it someplace. And I carried my Bible around with me. And it made me feel safe. It was like a security blanket that I carried. It was, it was my connection to God. It was something that I could feel. It was a felt connection. But you know, as I look back on that, I carried that Bible kind of like I would carry a rabbit's foot. It was kind of like for good luck. It was kind of like for this, this emotional connection. 
And I don't know that I had a really good sense of what the Bible really meant. It was just something I was supposed to do because everybody else was doing it. And it felt really good to do it. But when we let our beliefs about scripture or our faith or anything move into the realm of superstition, we have lost the essential connection with our God. And you know what superstition is? It's a supernatural causality. It's when we take two things and connect them that have no connection whatsoever. So we have a critic right here. Bring her back. And so we connect two things, like carrying around the rabbit's foot gives us good luck. Carrying around my Bible somehow made me closer to God. That devolved into a superstitious attitude on my part. Now, I think as I look back, it was a necessary beginning for me. I needed that. I needed that connection. I needed that sense that, that this book could draw me in because that was the beginning of 25 solid years of Bible study. I haven't stopped studying the Bible in 25 years. And if anything I'm saying sounds like I'm marginalizing Scripture or denigrating it, please understand, nothing could be further from the truth in my mind. My whole life is ordered around Scripture. My whole life is built on the study of Scripture. I want to be the most literal guy in the room. I remember when I was talking to a very dubious pastor across the lunch table, and he said, okay, so when you say that, you mean like if Matthew was sitting right here at this table, you'd want to know exactly what he meant by what he said, and I said, exactly that. But here's what my studies into the origins of Christianity and into the Hebrew roots of Christianity showed me, is that if we try to be literal, take a literal meaning of the scripture, simply based on the Western translation into our language through our Western worldview, we're going to get the wrong idea and the wrong impression. And mostly what we're going to get is a wrong way of going about our spiritual formation. We're going to treat our spiritual formation, we're going to treat our spiritual journey, if you will, our walk, the way we treat everything else that we try to acquire in life, because that's what we do. And if we don't realize that Jesus is speaking from a very different place, we will never understand what he means by entering kingdom. Because he said there's a whole different economy. There's a whole different way of going about this. And so that's what we need to explore. There was a chapter in the book that appeared in the original version that was really long that got cut because it wasn't straightly in line with where I was going but it had an analogy there that I think works really well in terms of understanding how scripture works. And that is, if you're a musician, if you're a composer, and you hear the song in your head that you want to write down, you hear the song, you hear the orchestration. I remember people saying Leonard Bernstein could hear an entire score in his head, each instrument in a full orchestra. He hears all that music. Mozart heard all that music, and he notates it down on manuscript paper. What do you have when you receive the manuscript notated from a master composer? Do you have the music? Well, we call it the music, but what is it really? Well, it's ink on paper is what it is. It's just paper. But you take that paper with those scratchings on it and put it in the hands of a master performer, a master musician, and suddenly in their hands it becomes music again. It becomes those vibrations in the air from which it started. It started with vibrations in the air. It started with the, 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 the notes in the mind of the composer. And through centuries or millennia, this conduit, this representation of the original event 
put back in the hands of someone who can do something with it becomes these sounds. Not the same sounds, necessarily. Because every performance, even if it's note for note, takes something of the performer and mixes it with that something from the composer and creates something unique, something different. If you think about scripture, it's going along the same lines. I want to read just a couple of paragraphs from that chapter. If we are determined to know God in the Aramaic sense of the word, and that is intimacy, familial intimacy, we are familiar with God because we've spent time with him, not intellectual understanding, but this experience of God. So if we're determined to know God in that Aramaic sense, to move beyond mere mental constructs and into intimate relationship, determined to live out this desire in the moments of our lives using the tool of our common sense, how do we do it? How do we go beyond mere theology the way a master musician goes beyond mere notes and bar lines to the pure experience of making beautiful vibrations in the air? A first step is to realize, say out loud even, that the notes in the bar lines of a page of music manuscript are not the music itself. They're a record of a performance or an idea. They're a frozen expression of a musical experience reduced to a code, a language, and preserved for such time when, in the hands of an inspired musician, the experience can be lifted back off the page and recreated in the air. Recreated similarly, but not exactly the same. And just as our written music is not the music itself, our sacred writings about God are not God himself. An inspired composer hears a sound in her head and notates it on paper in such a way that inspired performance can later reproduce that same particular sound and experience in their own unique way. Men and women, inspired by knowing God and God's knowing of them, notate their experience of God's presence in their personal lives and the life of their communities in such a way that others, in the throes of their own inspiration, can later reproduce that same experience of God's action in their own lives. The inspiration of the reader gets mixed in with the inspiration of the writer as the reader plays, quote-unquote, the text. The paper and ink of scripture are the conduit through which God's inspiration flows from writer to reader and back to God. They are not God. They are of God, but not God themselves. We re-experience God and know him better each time we read the truths revealed by God to the inspired authors of scripture. So the Bible is this conduit, if you're buying all that. It's the expression of an inexpressible experience. And remember this, the experience always comes first. What scripture did Abraham have as he was starting to come to know God as one when all of the nations around him had multiple gods? What scripture was he using as reference? There were none. He was the first. It was a pure experience with God. It was written down later. What scripture did Moses have as he's bringing forth the law to rely on? Moses is a traditional writer of the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, but he had no scripture as he was going through this intimate connection with God, this experience with God, both at the micro level and at the macro level with his entire nation. This intense experience of God's presence is a call 
There was a call on Abraham to leave his home and come to a new place. There was a call on Moses to take his people to that same place. These calls that they answered created a journey that they took that gave them the knowing, that familial intimacy, familiar intimacy with God. This intense experience that whitened Moses' hair and gave him a shine that the people could barely even see or look at. And so that is what is inspired and written down as scripture for us that carries through millennia to be able to come through us again and inspire us in the same way. Another excerpt. Catching God, knowing him, is much less like a classroom lecture than a concert hall performance, much more poetry than prose. Until we've learned to move from warrior to gardener, to let go of the power and control we imagine, we'll try to catch God through the four ways and their concrete objectives and strategies. But the experience of God is not objective, linear, and cognitive, but subjective, elusive, immersive, figurative, image-based as opposed to word-based, uncontrollable, outrageous, It's not a straightforward proposition for heaven and earth to interface. And human language can never carry the full weight of the experience. It can only point to it. But to have such experience is also the need to share it. So how do we express the inexpressible and share our experience with each other along the way? Ancient Easterners understood this dilemma and wrapped their message around God in ways we Westerners don't readily understand or accept today. Trying to read Hebrew scriptures as if they were the front page of the New York Times, we look for truth about God in ways that were never encoded, not realizing that much of the Bible is actually poetry, since Jewish poetry doesn't rhyme or follow set meter and is often translated into English as prose. We look for objective facts and figures where only metaphor, simile, and highly figurative allusions live. Then, missing the point, we draw factual conclusions never intended from passages meant to be evocative and immersive, conveying truth like music, aimed more at subconscious spirit than conscious mind. And again, if this sounds denigrating to the scripture, marginalizing it, I feel that it liberates it. It takes us to this higher level. It's not bounded by just what I can conceive in my mind. It takes me somewhere fully beyond that, allows me to move beyond just the things that I can understand or compensate. uh, What's the word I want? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Comprehend. That's the one I was looking for. And so here is this dilemma that we have. And we're trying to study these origins. We're trying to get down to a Hebrew context. And all these things are working against us from a Western point of view. And so this study of origins is taking us to this Hebrew context. To literalize in our Western translations is going to hurt us. It's not going to take us there. One more excerpt and then we'll be done with the book for today. It wasn't important or even possible for the ancient Jewish writers of scripture to resolve everything when dealing with the infinite. It was only important to learn to live richly between heaven and earth, to thrive in the unknowing through trust. Life doesn't resolve. You get that? Life doesn't resolve. Any apparent resolution is only the momentary beginning of the next cycle. 
So any expression of life, if it's accurate, doesn't resolve either. And the Bible is an accurate representation of life. We're looking for a solution. We're looking for neat lines and linear ways of looking at this non-contradiction. And the Bible resists that. It doesn't resolve in the way we want it to. It doesn't tie a neat bow around things. It shows us life as it really is. It shows us the spiritual journey as it really is. The way we look at scripture is a reflection of the way we look at life. We impute things into the scripture. We have been dissecting life, taking it apart, and trying to control the pieces for so long that we truly believe the same process will yield the spiritual answers that we seek. But the control we imagine over life is illusory. And the use of religion and scripture to control the things of spirit, even more so. Life and spirituality can't be controlled or objectively expressed. They can only be experienced as they are in their entirety. As soon as we break off pieces and imagine the pieces represent the whole, we deceive ourselves. We look for intellectual accuracy to lead us to spiritual truth. But to the ancients, everything was spiritual. Everything, all life and all events in life were infused and directed by God. And so the only way to begin to understand life and spirit was to be equally infused and directed. When we read the scriptures today without any understanding of these most basic facts of ancient life, we miss the path to inexpressible experience. That's what the scriptures are there for, to take us on that journey, to show us the way to the burning bush in our lives. Jewish writers were not concerned with intellectual points. Jewish writers didn't develop a high sense of theology the way we have in the West. They were interested in the immersion in an experience of God as a whole. God as the whole thing. God is everything in the universe. Jews call God the king of the universe. Everything needs to be taken together, not broken down into these theological bits. Reading the scriptures without this kind of context, without this understanding of how the ancients approached their own scriptures, is to miss the path to this inexpressible experience. It's kind of like going to Japan, walking into a restaurant and saying, oh, that's not how you do the chopsticks. Let me show you how you do the chopsticks. You know, We are imputing ourselves. We are moving into a culture and trying to force a different culture, a different understanding on top of something. And it's just the ignorance or just the arrogance of our Western position. We just don't get it. And so trying to move into that place is essential if we're going to read these scriptures and actually play the music. Because if we don't, everything stays silent. The music will not play. And so let's get down to it. Does Jesus have an opinion on this? What does Jesus come down on the way that we approach Scripture? If you take a look at the way Jesus approaches Scripture, it's decidedly non-Western. Jesus is quoting Scripture all the time. But you know that he primarily uses only four books? Almost all of his quotes come from Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. Those are his favorite books. He quotes once from Leviticus. And you know which one that is? Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Typically Jesus. All the other stuff about laws and tearing apart pigeons and doves. He lets all that stuff alone. 
all that stuff about going in and wiping out whole towns and villages and cities, he leaves all that stuff alone. He's very selective in the books that he chooses. And he's very selective about the passages he chooses within those books. That's decidedly non-Western, where we say the whole thing has to be harmonized, that the whole thing has to make a sense. But Jesus says, I have a message that I'm trying to bring. And these scriptures reinforce that message of God's love, of this good news, of this singular connection that we have, multiple things functioning as one. And everything is reinforcing that. And there's nothing out of place. No discordant notes, if you will. Jesus paraphrases scripture and gets it wrong. If you study scripture at all, you see all these theologians for 2,000 years scratching their head, what did Jesus mean? Because he quoted this passage wrong from Isaiah. It doesn't have the right wording. Jesus wasn't worried about that kind of stuff. He was trying to get a concept across. He was trying to turn heart lights on. He wasn't trying like a lawyer to get every line of the code just exactly right. That wasn't his purpose. That wasn't his focus. And it wasn't the focus of the Jews either. The Jews in general interpret their scriptures to this day much more fluidly, much more metaphorically and figuratively than we do. It's their scriptures. Want to show them how to hold the chopsticks? I mean, whose scriptures are they? How are we supposed to understand this book? that has been given to us from a different culture. As I've been doing for the last few weeks, bringing parables in, I want to bring a parable in because I think there's a parable here that Jesus is using to show us exactly this same concept. Take a look, Mark 4, starting at verse 26. And hopefully it's up on the screens because James is always right on it. And it's in your bulletins as well. This is usually known as the parable of the growing seed. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. The first, the blade, and then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Simple little story, right? Many different interpretations of this story. Everybody is trying to come at it from this Western point of view. It's interesting because the main metaphor here, the kingdom of heaven is like, and many commentators say, well, it's like the man. It's like the sower. No, it's like the seed. No, it's like the growing. No, it's like the soil. Or no, it's like the harvest. So they take each one of those images that Jesus uses and say, that's the primary metaphor. And every time they do that, the meaning changes. The focus changes. Because the focus is on the man or the, or the, the sower, the sower himself, or even the seed, which is understood as the word of God. From, this immediately follows the, the parable of the four soils. So they got that one down. Then the focus to them is on the macro. The focus is on the growth of the church. And of course, from a vantage point 2,000 years later, that makes a certain kind of sense. You know, the, seed is sprout, the seed is scattered, and this church grows. If the focus is on the harvest, then it goes into apocalyptic, eschatological, or end times sort of scenario where it's seen as a final judgment. And everything in between. Some see God or Jesus as the sower and sowing this toward this end times judgment scene. 
But then others say, wait a minute, the sower is ignorant and doesn't understand how these things happen. That can't describe God. So it must be the elders of the church or pastors themselves or just the disciples as they are spreading the word. And so then it goes back to macro church growth. If the focus, though, is on the soil, like it was in the four soils, then it goes micro. Okay, that's about an individual and about their conversion. You see how the, the thought process works when you're approaching this from a Western point of view? The key image, though, that I believe, the key detail that Jesus is giving us is right there, right in our face. The man has no idea how this works. That is so important to understand. He has no idea. He goes to bed. He goes to sleep. He pours out the seed. Now, it looks like he just sits on the couch and waits for the harvest to come. Now, all of the people listening to this know exactly what the farmer's life is like. It's grueling. It's day by day. There's something you have to get up before dawn every day to do or you won't have a harvest. They understand that. He puts out the seed. He had to prepare the soil before he put out the seed. He has to come back and he has to water it and nurture it and fertilize it. He has to do all those things. He has to weed it and do everything that he needs to do. But he goes to sleep and he wakes up and he has no idea what's happening in the ground. No idea what makes that seed germinate. He doesn't even know what germinate means. All he knows is is that at some point, a little blade, a green blade, will stick its head above that soil and then that will grow and he'll see the stalk and then he'll see the flowering and then he'll see the kernel and when it's white and it's ready he brings a sickle in and takes the harvest but he has no idea how this thing works it brings to mind Nicodemus I hope I hope you're thinking about that take a look John 3 7 to 8 this is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night afraid that anybody's going to see him but knowing something's going on here You know, how can these things be, he's asking. And Jesus says, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What was Nicodemus' objection? It was that he couldn't see this transformation. He couldn't see this change. He couldn't see this borning again. He couldn't see how it could be possible. What am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? How am I supposed to do this? He asks. He doesn't get it. And what is Jesus telling him? You don't need to get it. You don't need to understand. Not only do you not need to understand, you can't understand. It's impossible. Remember Job crying out to God? Why have all these bad things happened to me? And at the end, From the whirlwind, what does God say? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars and fixed them into their places? In other words, I can't. There's nothing that I can do to tell you, to answer the question that you're asking me because you're asking the wrong question. Not the right question. But we want, we long for God to answer these questions, to put it all down in black and white, to give us this thing because we're afraid. We're afraid. Life's too risky. It's too scary. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep the ministry going for another year. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep the lights on at home for another month. You know, I don't know if my child is 
lab reports are going to come back right. I don't know, I don't know. All these things, we want the answers because we're afraid. But God is telling us, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he's telling us through parable and everything, it's not the way it works. Why doesn't God just explain it to us? Think of it this way. You're a higher life form than a cockroach, right? When was the last time you tried to explain yourself to a cockroach? Not that God sees us as a roach, but how do you explain the infinite things that stand outside of space and time to someone who is inside that bubble? It can't be. But the beautiful thing is, it doesn't matter. We don't need to know this. See, the contemplatives, the mystics among us for millennia have understood this. They know this. They don't worry about it anymore. They lean into those places. Look at this little clip from the Cloud of Unknowing, which was a 14th century English mystic, anonymous, writing to a student about how it is that he could approach this contemplative way of knowing God. Not understanding God, but knowing God. He writes, no one can think of God. What does that do for you? Do you even believe that? He says, no one can think of God. Therefore, it is my wish to leave everything that I can think of and choose for my love the thing I cannot think. I don't know if you love that as much as I do. I love that. No one can think of God. Therefore, it's my wish to leave everything that I can think and choose for my love the thing that I cannot think. For God can be well-loved, but he cannot be thought. By love he can be grasped and held, but by thought neither grasped nor held. And therefore, though it may be good at times to think specifically of the kindness and excellence of God, and though this may be a light and part of contemplation, all the same, in the work of contemplation itself, it must be cast down and covered with a cloud of forgetting. And you must step above it stoutly but deftly with a devout and delightful stirring of love and struggle to pierce that darkness above you and beat on that thick cloud of unknowing with a sharp dart of longing love and do not give up whatever happens. That is coming from a place so different than we live, both religiously and spiritually, secularly. Such a different place. The language sounds so odd. Maybe it doesn't make any sense at all until you experience it yourself and you'll know exactly what he's talking about, exactly how this thing works. God is not understandable by intellect. We think we know him. That's the illusion. We think we understand him because we can articulate the Trinity or we can recite the Apostles' Creed. But understanding God is not knowing him. Knowing theology is not knowing God. And thinking that we understand these scriptures because we have all these footnotes and all these Bible software programs and we've studied from all these teachers misses the point if we haven't actually taken him into our tent and known him. If we haven't answered the call and risked something dear to us to follow that call and find out to see those burning bushes in our path. That's knowing the way Jesus is talking about. 
God is not understandable by intellect, but he's knowable by love. We can know him in love and in silence. See, the spiritual awareness, the spiritual awakening is not acquirable in the way that we acquire everything else. Wind and water are the most powerful forces on the face of the earth. That's why Jesus uses them to describe spirit, to describe this process. He calls himself living water. He talks about spirit as the wind that is blowing through our lives, but it's unknowable. Wind and water are not straight. They're not ordered. They're chaotic. They're curved. It's very difficult to predict where they're going to go sometimes because they move and they swirl through our lives. That's the way spirit works. And if you're going to fight that, if you're going to try to get it to behave the way you want it to behave, because of your fear, you'll be beating your head against the wall for as long as you choose to approach spirit that way. And you'll never be able to enter kingdom as Jesus understands kingdom, as he's trying to get us to move through it. Kingdom happens. Kingdom becomes when we go to sleep and we live our lives and we get up in the morning and we do the things day by day that we do and we keep showing up to whatever program spiritually that we put in place for ourselves, our devotions in the morning, our church on Sunday, the studies that we go to, not because we're trying to acquire more intellectual knowledge, but because we're just showing up to the process. This is our way of watering and weeding and tilling and nurturing just showing up to the process. But everything is happening without our knowledge, even without our permission. But it's happening. And soon there comes a day when you realize the harvest is white. You should have triggered me to really tick me off, and I should have reacted the way that I always do, and it didn't happen. Suddenly I still see you as a fellow human being, and I still love you. And you didn't offend me, And I don't feel the need to justify myself or defend myself. And even in the midst of difficulties and financial pressure that would have taken me to my knees six months or a year ago, suddenly I still feel a sense that something is okay, that everything is okay, that somehow it's all going to work out. And I start to actually see these signs and wonders and burning bushes in my path because I'm becoming more and more sensitized to God's presence. How did that happen? I just showed up to a Bible study. I just showed up on Sunday morning. I just got up in the morning and said some devotionals and read my daily devotion. It doesn't matter. All those things are just tools to spend the time to answer the call that takes us where we really need to go. I remember it was almost exactly 20 years ago. I know that because I have a journal entry that I'm going to read you in a second here. When I started to understand what this meant, how this actually worked, how things happened outside of my ken, outside of my knowledge or awareness. All I had to do was make the soil as good as it could possibly be for the seed to happen, for the harvest to happen. That's all I could do. I had no control over the rest. On Monday, February 7th, 1994, wow, at 6.35 a.m., I wrote, Storm has been coming for two days. Right on schedule, storm is here. Not much of a storm right now, just a gentle rain in the gray outside my half-opened window. The rain is hard enough to make a continuous sound, but still light enough to hear individual drops. 
As I listen, I can hear where they are falling, on concrete or the wide leaves of shrubbery, on the steel drums of the barbecue pits. I can hear where they are in space, some close, others falling into the middle distance of the courtyard, others much softer, blending into delicate white noise several hundred feet away. Little drops have made it through the maze of barren branches to directly hit their targets. Other larger drops have collected on branches or rain gutters and hit with a heavier splat. It all makes a beautifully spacious music. I can't tell you how pleasing it is to sit here in natural light and just be sitting here in natural light, sitting, listening, trying to write, but drifting back off into the rain. This storm has been coming for two days. I heard about it Saturday morning. After the rain Friday, the air was clean and patches of sky between the high shifting cumulus formations were very blue. The way it is here only after rain, immediately after. And I thought about this storm still hundreds of miles out to sea, squalling uselessly over the face of the water, unheeded except by satellites passing overhead and occasional ships underneath. After all, the fish couldn't get any wetter. It has been coming all this time while I had lunch and read, while I came home and worked at the computer until 11.30, while I was running yesterday morning before church, while my pastor thundered his sermon, while I bought a friend a birthday present and then worked again at the computer until it was time to go to the birthday dinner. And sometime while I slept, it arrived. The leading edges of the storm system looked blindly down as the monotonous face of the water gave way to white diagonal lines of breakers dissipating against the sand and then to the strip of coastal highway beyond the sand and the six short miles of rooftops and parking lots until it looked down and did not see the little wooded courtyard outside my window. Sometime while I slept, the wind picked up a bit. Sometime while I slept, the first drops began to fall. All this, without my knowledge or permission or volition, while I lived my last two days, while I slept, I simply wake up to the gift of this beautiful sound, to an hour of precious solitude with my window and my Lord and these words. And then it moved on. I am told the storm will last until tomorrow. Then we will have another clean blue day. Eventually, we will have another storm. I don't know when. I am glad not to know such things. To wake up and find that storms need nothing from me, but graciously include me in all they have to give. Eventually, we will have another storm. I will try to spend some time with it also. Let's pray. Father, we're going to try to spend more time with you. We're not going to take on things over which we have no control. We're going to let the seeds do their work in the soil, but we're going to work hard to prepare the soil. We're going to show up and we're going to do the things that we say we're going to do. We're going to keep our promises. We're going to work hard, but we're going to stay here and stay now and let these things of spirit, these things that you do so beautifully, just move and just take shape. And we're going to try not to be afraid. We're just going to let you be God. 
and let ourselves be your people. Father, thank you again so much for this beautiful gift of this book, these books, this scripture, this treasure trove of experience of people and you. Help us to dive in in the most immersive way and find out exactly what it is you're trying to convey so that we can then turn around and show up with more and more grace and more and more confidence to everything that we do. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you. In Jesus' name. All right. Let's all stand.